Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Flint post-budget briefing call. I'm Kieran Horwich, a partner here at Flint, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Tim Pitt, former advisor to Chancellors Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid, and Giles Wilkes, former advisor to the Business Secretary Vince uh, Vince Cable and uh, Prime Minister Theresa May. So yesterday, the Chancellor announced his latest budget and the first multi-year spending review since 2015. With the OBR providing a more optimistic economic outlook, the careful balancing act between spending and fiscal responsibility seems to have been a bit easier than expected. So on our call today, we'll talk about what the Chancellor actually announced, what this tells us about the government's economic priorities for the coming years, and what its political implications might mean. We'll also talk, obviously, about what this means for business. Um, As usual, we've muted the lines and we won't take any questions during the call, but do let us know if there is anything that you'd like to discuss with us afterwards. Uh, So, Tim, before we get into some of the detail, um, will you give us an overview of the key judgments the Chancellor made yesterday? Yeah, sure, Kieran. Look, so strip away all the noise about specific announcements and, and, and the top line is that the Chancellor took advantage of what was a really big upgrade in in the forecast for the public finances, essentially to do two things. First, to to provide significant support for for households and for businesses in in the short term to try to ensure the COVID recovery doesn't falter. And second, to deliver the biggest injection of cash into public services uh, since since New Labour's heyday, um, while, while still managing to keep you know, quite a big amount of fiscal firepower back in reserve that he'll be able to deploy either either to support the recovery if it falters further or, as the Chancellor will hope, as a pre-election tax uh, giveaway. I'll spend just a couple of minutes un- unpacking those decisions and, and judgments that, that sit behind them. So the, the first judgment that the Chancellor had to make was about what short-term support to provide the economy and, and households through what is going to be a potentially pretty tricky next 12 months as the recovery looks as if it's it's slowing somewhat and obviously inflation uh, is spiking and and here you know he had the balance on on the one hand he faced you know pressure to support households facing that cost of living squeeze and to support the economy more broadly to ensure that that to the, to ensure that the the, the recovery maintains uh, momentum now that the existing massive covid support from things like the furlough scheme and the various tax breaks are ending um, and set against that, you've got the Bank of England already sounding pretty hawkish over the need to raise interest rates to control uh, inflation. So the Chancellor was very aware that pumping loads more cash into the economy risks fueling that inflationary fire and potentially might force an even earlier rate rise from the bank. Now, d- d- despite his sort of outward warnings about inflation, that the Chancellor actually opted for a pretty sizable short-term stimulus, you know, over £20 billion each of the next two years. Now, that's obviously nothing like the scale of of what we've seen over COVID. But in historical terms, that is still quite big. It's sort of in the ballpark of what Alistair Darling's stimulus uh, during the the financial crisis was, for example. And, and And he split that support broadly three ways. So there is support for households, most notably with the injection into universal credit for those who are in work. There's help for businesses with with a business rates cut and an extension uh, of an investment allowance. And then there's a big increase in support for public services, particularly next year, uh, to help deal with with the COVID fallout. And all this put together should help see off criticism that he's turning off fiscal support before the recovery is uh, uh, secure. Now, Sunak's second key judgment judgment was around the medium-term path for tax and spending. And he set out spending plans for the next three years. That, that Those are plans that, that will therefore take the Tories into the next election. 
And, and in making that judgment, the, the, the Chancellor confirmed the, the fiscal framework, the fiscal rules, that, that, that the Tories would almost certainly fight that election on. So he's going to balance day-to-day spending and have debt falling on a three-year forward look with, with an investment target of 3% of GDP. Now, that framework isn't actually that hawkish by historic standards. So it would allow Sunak to run a deficit of 3% if he wanted to, even in good times. And so those those relatively loose rules combined with with a thirty five billion pound a year upgrade in the OBR's forecast for the for the public finances, essentially because they think the the permanent damage from COVID won't be as bad as 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 they first thought. A combination of those two things mean that despite all the tough talk that we've seen from the Treasury over the need to repair the, the battered public finances, the Chancellor had really quite a lot of room to play with medium term yesterday, and he used quite a lot of it. So you know, he reckoned the pressure that public services are under both coming out of COVID but also after after a decade of, of spending was uh, restraint. So we used a chunk of that headroom to top up the overall spending pot for public services. As, as I said, that, that support is front-loaded over the next couple of years to help deal with COVID pressures. But overall, total departmental spending is going to rise by, by 3% uh, a year in real terms over the next three years. Yeah, and as lots of newspapers have reported this morning, that is much more Gordon Brown uh, than, than George Osborne. You know, this was no return to uh, austerity. So look, th- those, those are the main two judgments uh, he makes. I, he, he made, I think, I think they are well judged. Um, and the Chancellor will be broadly pleased with the initial uh, reaction to it today. But his, his approach isn't risk-free, either, either economically or politically. Thanks, Tim. And, and we'll come back to some of those risks in a bit. But, but before we do, Giles, I wanted to come to you to try and un- unpack some of the specific measures um, in a bit more detail. Uh, and in particular, we, we've heard a lot of rhetoric about the government, from the government, about its ambitions to move to a new higher wage, higher growth, higher productivity economy. Um, do we have a better idea about the government's plans on how it's going to deliver on that from yesterday's statement? Thank you, Kieran. Um, well, what do we know today that we didn't know yesterday? And, and that's not just a jibe about the amount of this budget that was pre-briefed in the week before. <clears throat> but you could still argue that in terms of the government's approach to making us a more prosperous long-term economy, we don't know that much more because they had a plan already. And their job is to sort of deliver on it. The government's major headings are still basically the same ones. A preeminent is levelling up this mission to boost the productivity of regions outside of the um, the southeast of the UK. Net zero, with the COP climate change um, meeting coming up in the next week or two. Science superpower status and global Britain. These are still the phrases that backbenchers and ministers have learned to parrot, just as they used to under George Osborne talk about the long-term plan or an end to boom and bust under Gordon Brown. And the, so these, this is a pretty broad programme and it still now needs funding. And that's what the budget is largely confirmed. I mean, the major components of the government's approach are still there and they're well-funded. Like, for example, a big part of levelling up is getting better skills to the people who don't normally make it to university and the National Skills Fund is still there, well supported, the lifetime skills guarantee, still secure and that's furthering a push towards further education that you don't see um, being echoed in the discussion of university funding. Leveling Up is still enjoying its discrete series of pots with various names like Leveling Up Fund and Towns Fund and so forth 
it still awaits a grand strategy from the newly anointed um, Department for Leveling Up and Communities, um, headed by Michael Gove. State science spending is still rising at quite a clip as a share of GDP. It's been nudged a little bit to the right, and there were some hysterical noises from elements of the science community. This is kind of going back on the deal, but it's still a really handsome amount of science compared to what we used to enjoy. And Global Britain is, well, it's still there as a, a broad policy idea, but it's um, largely an effort to push these pretty cosmetic trade deals while pretending that the break from the EU isn't as serious as it really is. So the government's basic microeconomic approach is still the one we thought we had when we uh, at the beginning of the week. Of course, it should be. But we have learned a little. Um, I would say for starters, either through inclination or prime ministerial pressure, the Chancellor has been shoved towards being a spending Chancellor to quite an astonishing degree as Tim has laid out there. I'd be very surprised if the implicit bargain does not involve the Treasury being absolutely involved in everybody's plans. They don't allow this amount of money to go out without saying, well, let's really discuss how it's being spent. A second thing is, there is a pro-investment tilt in Treasury thinking, and you can see it in a lot of the tax measures. Keeping the annual investment allowance going for a few more years is one example. The shift in business rates to allow for more improvements without your business rates bill immediately going up is another one. And that was being thought about for a long time. Some voices will still be complaining about the watering down of the R&D targets. The, the boost to innovate UK within the R&D ecosystem is another attempt to get more game changing investment from business. And um, he's signalled, although not yet scored, shifts in the R&D tax credit system. Um, which are going to be towards more investment in the UK too. And finally, there is this review on the cap of pension fund fees. In order, it's a slightly technical subject, but in order to enable it to be better funded towards more alternative, unorthodox investment outside of areas like the South East. Another point I would make, a bit of a reversion to a more Tory, um, more Tory territory, is um, the move on universal credit. Sure. I mean, some of it is to dull the criticism that we've had about the cost of living crisis, taking away £20 a week just as the cost of living is rising. But there's a significant improvement in work incentives, which I see as a recognition that the problems this autumn may be about signalling that the tighter labour markets we have are a problem for a while and we need to encourage work more. So, I mean, I would conclude by saying, well, is this a, a shift towards the higher productivity plane that the Prime Minister talked about around conference? Of course, the answer is no. I mean, budget announcements are seldom able to do that on their own. I mean, Brexit costs 4% of GDP, according to the OBR, and COVID lowers it by another 2%. These are like multi-multi-billion pound affairs. You can't expect a few billion here or there in a budget announcement to lean against that. But that would set the bar too high. If you think, as many of us do, and clearly, as Tim signalled earlier, that a shift towards higher spending and higher taxes is broadly the right way to go, then what Rishi Sunak has managed to do in the last 12 months, all the time while appearing to want the opposite, is really quite remarkable. So back to you, Kieran. Thanks, Giles. So, so picking up on, on one of the other sort of major government priorities around net zero, obviously it, it's COP next week. What did we learn yesterday about the government's net zero plans and, and delivering on that aspect of the agenda? I would say that this is an area where the disappointment has been more uniform, um, particularly after the excitement about the huge release of documents the week before. But then you've got to say for context, the last thing that any chancellor or environmentalist can want is a budget held in the shadow of a cost of living crisis with a climate change conference coming the next week. 
I mean, although I'm not usually capable of feeling sorry for ministers, this one really tests me because cost of living will always win. So fuel duty, of course, it was going to be frozen. In fact, environmentalists should probably feel lucky that earlier ideas of cutting the vat on of domestic fuel didn't gain more, uh, didn't gain um, some more um, traction with the government. A lot was made about the changes of air passenger duty. I mean, of course, it makes sense to go after long haulers. It doesn't make much sense to be encouraging more flying within the UK, but it seems like one of those sort of Brexit wins that the Chancellor wanted to have. But overall, in fiscal terms, these are tens of millions of pounds and people are making more noise than they should do about it. But former insiders, those of us who spent a lot of time fighting on some of these agendas, would say the government has been making really significant process. I mean, the really big one for me, use of the regulated asset base to fund new nuclear. This was something that was being fought about for years and years. It's quite something for the Treasury to be allowing that through. The support for gigafactories to produce batteries and underpin our future car industry. More support for small nuclear reactors. That improvement in business rates regime that affects improvements that are environmental in character. These are all useful kind of green tilts. So the thing I would say is, okay, the, the environmentalists won't be particularly happy with this budget. But the thing with net zero is you can either measure how much money is being spent now more than before, in which case we are clearly making progress in areas like hydrogen and nuclear and CCUS. Or you can look at the overall goal, 2050 goal, and say, are we there yet? And of course we're not. But the, this government's approach is to go in small iterative steps, test the private sector waters. And sometimes that means some opportunities are not grabbed immediately. So, um, but it does also mean less money is actually being wasted. Back to you, Kieran. Thanks very much, Giles. So, so Tim, I'm going to come back to you. And um, you alluded earlier to the political and economic risks uh, that the Chancellor remains exposed to, um, despite the broadly positive initial receptions yesterday's plans. So can you expand on that a bit more for us? Yeah, sure. So, so or st- starting with the, with the economics, I think he's he's potentially exposed on two flanks. So, on 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 the one hand, and I alluded to this earlier, you know, if if despite yesterday's short term stimulus measures, the recovery runs out of steam and and the chancellor is forced to come back to return to provide yet more stimulus uh, to ensure a a robust recovery, that's going to leave him personally reputationally exposed because even though the support he is providing short term i think is is pretty generous by by historic standards on current plans the, the the uk is well ahead of all other major economies in terms of switching its focus from stimulus to consolidation so we're the first major economy to set out plans about how we're going to get borrowing under control no other advanced economy has done that so if the recovery runs out of steam i do think the chancellor is exposed to the criticism of having turned to the job of repairing the public finances too soon despite as i say that that initial short term support that he is providing at the other end of of the spectrum as i said yesterday's stim- stimulus was set against a backdrop of existing pretty high inflation and i think that leaves him vul- vul- vulnerable because if price rises really take off and the Bank of England has to raise interest rates aggressively, he could take the blame for having overheated uh, the economy. And he wouldn't be the first Tory Chancellor who put their foot down on the accelerator once too often. I'm not sure um, if anyone listening is old enough to remember Anthony Barber's budget in 1972, but I imagine lots remember Nigel Lawson's in 1988. Both showered already overheating economies with more uh, fiscal largesse, and the result ultimately was sharp rises in interest rates booms turning to bust, to, to, to bust and unfortunately for the two chancellors, political reputations uh, severely uh, damaged. So that's the economics. On, on the political front, you know, I think it's important to distinguish between the political threat from Labour 
and the political challenges for the Chancellor from within the Tory party. So on, on, on the Labour front, broadly speaking, the Tories have planted their tanks firmly on Starmer's lawn. It is very hard for Labour to criticise what is, what is essentially a Gordon Brown budget. And that the Chancellor was able to do that while also maintaining headroom against his fiscal rules will, will, will help him keep political definition with, with Labour, who've adopted a pre- pretty similar set of rules but have made it clear they'll spend every last penny of the headroom. So that's going to help the Tories continue to hammer Labour for being untrustworthy on the public finances. And that's something they've done very successfully, obviously, over the last decade. So when it comes to the opposition, I think the the, the, the political risk is not so much how Labour can attack the Tories, but what the economic backdrop might be going into the next election. Obviously, if, if the economic risks I've highlighted materialise, that, that is going to damage the, the Tories politically. But even if those two risks don't don't specifically uh, materialise. On on the current forecast, you have very strong growth this year and next, but then you have a pretty big slowdown in 2023 and 2024 and barely any real wage growth in those years. And that is, of course, when the next general election is almost certainly going to be. And that is not an ideal backdrop for an incumbent to be running against. Even so, so you know there there, is, there are some tricky uh, issues for them to deal with when it, when it comes to dealing with the op- with the opposition. Even so, I think I think the bigger challenge politically for the for the chancellor, as I say, may come from within his own party. Now, here I think he made some politically astute moves yesterday. So he got ahead of potential rebellions on a couple of fronts by returning the aid commitment to 0.7 percent and and delivering a big cut in the taper rate for universal credit that Giles mentioned to see off a potential backbench rebellion over the ending of the 20 pound uh, UC uplift. But the the size of the overall spending increases that he announced yesterday, I do think potentially leave him vulnerable on his right flank. So most of the £40 billion of tax rises, biggest tax rises in 30 years, most of those that he announced were, were sold on the premise of fixing the public finances, not delivering a spending splurge. So that there will be a wing of the party who looks at yesterday's announcements and say, hold on, were all those tax rises really necessary you know actually they've, they've been funding a big increase in spending not not repairing the, the, the public finances and that probably explains why, why the chancellor ended his budget speech with what seemed like a slightly odd section yesterday proclaiming that he wants to cut taxes and control the, the size of the state which didn't really chime at all with with what he'd just spent the previous hour uh, announcing i think there's there's then a more fundamental question for the chancellor politically which is you know what he actually wants to do with the office of 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 being chancellor o- over the medium term you know if if the task of supporting the economy through covid and then fixing the public finances is, is largely done and he's done a pretty good job of that the the question is what next for rishi sunak he he's not really driving the government's domestic agenda you've got michael gove setting himself up as the brains behind leveling up and you've got the prime minister you know dom, uh, in in command of the net zero agenda Rishi Sunak is a sort of begrudging facilitator of that all. He's not he's not driving either of those uh, agendas, which, which which is fine in a way. Lots of chancellors operate like that, essentially in a defensive mindset um, mindset. But I think the risk for him, particularly if he has leadership ambitions, which I think most people think he he does, is that if he doesn't set out a clear agenda of his own, his political star may start to gradually wane over time. Thanks, Tim. So let, let's dig into that, that latter point a bit more and, and particularly the internal political challenges that the Chancellor faces with, with other members of the Cabinet. Does that, does that include his relationship with the Prime Minister? 
Look, I, I, I think there is always some tension inevitable between number 10 and number 11, not just among the principals, but you know, definitely amongst their respective teams of advisors and officials. They're always going to have differing views on tax and spending, and that is particularly true in the run-up to, to fiscal events. Uh, and I think there's definitely been some uh, uh, over the course of, of the last couple of months. The media always overplay how bad things are, though. You know, it's never quite as bad as 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 as, as you read in the press. And in fact, you know, while there has been some some tension since Parliament came back in the summer, I, I think we've actually seen sort of remarkable unity between Number Ten and Eleven. They showed a pretty united front on the tax rises to pay for 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 social care, and you had this sort of balanced package yesterday between one what what I suppose you could call Johnsonian boosterism on the one hand and and Sunakian fiscal conservatism. So it seems to be a kind of productive working relationship. But as I say, there there will always be an underlying tension, not just over tax and spending, but because ultimately chancellors almost always tend to want the job of the prime minister they are serving. I think that is probably true of the current incumbent. That doesn't mean you're going to see a coup d'etat anytime soon, but I think it means there will always be a level of distance between the two individuals personally and between the two buildings institutionally. Thanks, Tim. So, Giles, it wouldn't be a Flint briefing call if we didn't ask a question about business. So uh, can you talk to us a bit about what does this all mean for business in the end? Yes, well, for those of um, you who are nostalgic for the times of George Osborne and like continuous cuts in corporation tax and a really positive approach to business, those days are over. This government's approach to business remains essentially tactical rather than ideological. So sometimes there'll be partnership because it knows that you have to work with it. Sometimes there'll be a fair amount of, um, sort of tension between the two. So partnership, you'll find that on innovation, investment, net zero. But other areas, I mean, most recently, the most highlighted at conference, migration, wages, supply constraints, you'll have a, an awful lot of fighting about what the problem is. So business does need to think really carefully about what they want from the relationships and in some areas tread extremely carefully. Now, a few things, a few points to make about the postures the government has made that, as they affect government, um, business rather, sorry. Um, he's gone a long way to setting out plans to put public finances under control. As Tim says, he might even be criticised for moving on into that gear a little too soon. But he's done it in large part by being really tough on business. I mean, I would have placed a small bet on him using some of the firepower he had for this budget to slightly ease that rise in corporation tax. And he hasn't used it for that. The business rates package that was meant to sort of mitigate that to some extent, that's fallen flat. So that, that's an important decision he made for now. Um, another really important point, I think Treasury control is still a real factor of life. The Treasury has allowed a lot more spending. It's done it through gritted teeth, I think. And as a result of that, we're going to see much more Treasury micro control within government, in my view. But what I picked up from my friends who are still working on the net zero agenda, yes, there's a big net zero ambition, a huge conference going on, all sorts of massive long-term targets. The Treasury is still all over it, and there's a lot of tension there. So you still need to bear in mind how you get past the Treasury, no matter what you're doing, inside or outside of government. And so also the rhetoric coming from government, I'd come back to that point made at conference. They really enjoyed saying things like, you know what, these shortages and wage rises, this is all part of the plan. They thought this polled really, really well. They quite enjoyed that opposition to the business interest. No longer the standard language of pro-competition conservatives. It's a really quite an interesting anti-competitive streak emerging in the Tory party that says, actually, you know, we should do things at home and doesn't matter if the costs and the wages go up. This is quite the opposite of the 
Conservative Party that we saw in the 80s. And we're yet to see how that plays out. There has to be a point of tension between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. And it's a very political um, posture to take. It's because it polled really, really well. If it doesn't work out well, if people see wage rises are making other people less well off, that's going to really um, play into the debate too, and it will shift again. So there are still really important voices in government making the pro-business case. I would always highlight Liz Truss. I would always highlight Rishi Sunak himself. But um, uh, uh, you need to find them and you need to get them to champion your cases. It really does require a lot of skilled engagement with this government, particularly as that cliff edge of higher corporate taxes comes around the corner. Back to you, Kieran. Well, thanks very much, Giles. And thank you, Tim, as well. Um, And to everyone that's joined us on the call. Uh, We hope that you have found this a useful discussion. Um, We've certainly found it very interesting. Um, As I said at the top, if there are any questions on anything that we've raised on the call today, please do let us know. Um, Otherwise, thank you very much and have a good day.